Good morning, everyone. Uh, today we're going to have uh, some fun, right? All right, so we're in um, Isaiah 49. So if you would turn with me there. Why did the mood change when we said we're in Isaiah? It got solemn. It, it, it seems kind of, yes, thank you. If you do not have a Bible, we are restocked in the back at the coffee bar, so feel free to get up and grab a Bible. If you do not have one, that is um, our gift to you. So there are uh, several copies there on the left. Thank you, Hansley. Great job today. Uh, We are in uh, Isaiah 49. If you missed uh, last week, welcome. We're glad that you are back or here for the first time. We started a, uh, a new series of talks that are going to prepare us for Easter and set up for us what uh, Easter is ultimately about. There's lots of different ways to do that. The way we're going about it this year is we're looking at some of the uh, Old Testament prophecies in particular from the book of Isaiah that help us to understand what Christ did at the cross. So this will lead us up through Good Friday and then also into Easter. I hope you, uh, just as a quick aside, are thinking and praying about somebody you can invite and bring with you Easter morning. Uh, It's going to be a fun morning, so begin thinking about that. So we're in Isaiah 49 today. Um, If I could just set it up with a few comments, and then we'll read uh, a lot of the chapter together. One of the deepest longings that every human heart has is the desire to be loved. Now, before you go thinking romance, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. That's not exactly it. Within us, there is a deep yearning to be the recipient of some kind of love, to to be the object of someone else's affections, to know and to be known, you might say. Now, nobody had to teach us that. It wasn't an instruction that we were given. It's an innate propensity that's in the human heart. We're born with it. And from the very earliest of age, if you don't receive it, it begins to have a catastrophically negative effect on your soul. The, the time, I've, I've told this before, but it's just so fitting, I've got to use it again. Uh, you know you've been in a church a while when you have to recycle your stuff. Uh, about 10, maybe 12 years ago, I went on a a mission trip to uh, Romania. And one of the tasks we did was to go into an orphanage and simply hold babies and pray for them. And uh, it was uh, immensely overwhelming uh, to me. I didn't have my own children at that time, had not been around uh, a lot of kids other than myself. And I went in a room that had uh, cribs literally butted up against each other around the entire room. And I remember counting, there was uh, 26 babies in this one room. And uh, there was no air conditioner. And uh, I hope there's no Romanians here today. Is there? No. All right. So they've got some really weird beliefs. Uh, One of them is that they will only open windows on one side of a room because there's a folk tale that says if windows are open on both sides of your house, then the wind can blow into the room, into your ear, and get caught inside and not go out the other side. So literally, every building you go in, in Romania, uh, will not have air conditioning unless it's McDonald's, and 
they'll only open one side of the room and it's immensely hot and that did not help the story at all. So I don't know why I told you, but, uh, oh, here's why the, uh, a lot of the babies had, uh, heat rashes, um, on their faces, on their hands, cause it was just really hot. And in the downstairs part of this orphanage was another 15 or 20, uh, toddlers. Guess how many workers? Two. Two workers for roughly 40 kids under the age of five. This was supposed to be the best orphanage in the town that we were in. But the thing I noticed was um, as you would go to these infants, most of them two, three, four months old, and put your hand on the baby to pray for the baby, he or she many of them, the older ones, would literally recoil to the touch. As you put your hand on their chest to pray over them, they would pull away. Why? They hadn't been loved. Now, here's a baby that can't talk, can't reason. It's not really fully aware of everything that's going on around it. And at a very early age, it's evidencing the desire to be loved and the ramifications upon the soul when you don't have love. Because there's only two workers, they would literally go through, turn a baby on its side, wedge a bottle between the side of the crib and the baby's face and hope the baby ate. Two diaper changes a day. And so a lot of them are laying in their own filth. And that's the way they're going to grow up. Now, I doubt many of us in the room grew up that way. But all of us have the marks, most likely, of a lack of love. We bear the evidences in our everyday life of the fact that we haven't been loved. That desire is written on our hearts, We use a a lot of different words for it, that we want to be cared for, accepted, known, embraced, respected, but the meaning's the same. Within us, there's a desire to be loved. Now, the problem, of course, is that this desire to be loved consumes us with people and things that can't possibly provide it for us. So we don't have it, we long for it, we go seeking it, and... In many ways, the story of our lives, don't worry, I won't sing, is that we look for love in places that can't deliver it. They can't provide it. They only offer counterfeits or partial versions of the love we're looking for. Anybody that's married in the room or has been married knows that. There is no perfect spouse. If we look for a spouse to fix the desire inside to be loved, you'll only be left wanting. And I do love you. (laughs) Many of us had parents in a room this size who could care less about us. Out of their own brokenness, if they were even around, they didn't really live out the love that God would call them to. Some of us try to earn friends and family's love through getting them to accept us based on our performance. How's that working for you? It doesn't turn out very well. You can never do enough to deliver on that. 
Some of us have poured our love out on a child only to have that child grow up and reject us completely. Still others have given up on the quest for love, so we look for it in, in work, in looks, in possessions, in degrees, and the like. All of these things turn out to be dead ends. And yet the story of civilization is the story of people searching for love and acceptance and meaning in things that cannot provide it. Now, it's been said that the gospel, the message of Christianity, is the deepest answer to every human desire. That's certainly the case here. Because there is no greater love than the love of God poured out at the cross. It is there in the most awful event that's ever taken place that we can fully and finally see what true love is. And we can receive that love. Today, my goal is simply to try and demonstrate that for you by laying forth a very old passage of Scripture and in hopes that God would breathe His life into it and allow us as people, many years after Isaiah wrote these words, to experience the love of Christ. The Bible, after all, is the story of God's love for an unlovely people. So let me show you what I mean. This is Isaiah, uh, verse chapter uh, 49, verse 1. Let's read it together. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hands. And my reward is with God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, for my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who's faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. That just cleared it all up, didn't it? (laughs) Isaiah is difficult. These are not easy passages, but if we'll hear what's really said, we'll find that here is laid bare our own hearts. Here is the truth of what you've been searching for. Here is the answer to the desire for love. Exactly. No ducks allowed, Lisa. Now... 
Isaiah depicts a couple different things. There's the original situation that Isaiah spoke into. Then there's the situation that Isaiah spoke forward to, which is Christ's death and resurrection, which we now look back on. And then there's the situation yet to come that's prophesied for the future of Jesus coming back. So these are not easy passages. There's three variant things going on, all of which the passage speaks to. So there's the original setting, there's forward looking to Jesus, which we look back at, and there's looking forward to Jesus returning. Is anybody dizzy except me? It's not easy stuff. But if you'll hang with me, I think we'll find great meaning here. What we need to know in order to make sense of this text is the whole story of humanity. It's the whole story of the Bible. It requires some prior knowledge. If you don't have it, that's completely fine and we're thrilled you're here. If you do have it, you can be encouraged and refreshed by it. So I'd like to tell you the whole story of the Bible in about three minutes. Would someone like to time me? Excellent. That was rhetorical. First, we have a creation. If we start at the beginning of the Bible, we find that the world God originally created was very different than the world we now know. Not that it was a different location, not that it was a different planet, but things didn't look like they look now. It was a perfect world, a world where everything was put together correctly. Everything worked the way it was supposed to work. There was harmony and peace and love. There was no violence, no neglected kids, no cancer, no separation before God, no enmity between people, no layoffs or downsizes or sicknesses, no negatives, only joy all the time. Can you imagine that? Have you experienced a single hour of your life that way? Someone uh, told me this morning that she had a, uh, a nightmare overnight. She dreamed her, her uh, desired future husband proposed in Walmart to her. <laughs> Even in our dreams, we don't have peace. <laughs> the world we all want is the world we had. The, the thing that we're desiring for is what existed in the past. So something went horribly wrong. Theologians call this the fall. Now, not a literal tripping and falling, but a falling from the perfect world God made into a world of chaos and sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to believe lies about God. They chose to believe that he withheld from them. They chose to believe he wasn't really good. That the father didn't provide for them all that they needed. They chose to try and usurp his place as king and put themselves there. That's what sin always is, by the way. It is a rejection of God's character in favor of the belief that we can get something better somewhere else. So that's what they did, Adam and Eve. They chose to reject the command of God in favor of their own selfishness. If you want to read exactly what happened sometime later today, check out Genesis 3. Everything fell apart. Adam and Eve became sinners. Their relationship with God was shattered. 
Because a holy God can't be in loving union with unholy people. Their relationship with each other also became conflicted. The natural roles God has given them became more difficult. They were separated from God and eventually they would physically die. And everything on earth was affected. Peace was lost not just between them and God and them and each other, but them and everything else as well. Would anyone here today testify that work is hard? Ultimately, that's not because your boss is a doofus. It's because the world is cursed. Would anyone here today say that my relationships with people at home are hard? That's not just because you live with difficult people. It's because you live in a fallen world. Would anyone say that I find myself searching again and again and again and again and again for love in things that I know experientially don't really give me what I want. And yet I continue to buy what I can't afford, pledge myself to things that I can't deliver on, give myself away to people that only hurt me. They say the definition of an insanity is what? Same thing over and over and over. That's all I heard from here. It's doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over, expecting different results. That's the story of our hearts. That's because we're looking for things in the physical world to put things back together that can only be fixed in the spiritual world. And so it appeared that the human experiment, if we can call it that, was destined to certain failure. Looks like it was over. Lost cause. And God could have simply wrung his hands of the whole thing and let it go. But that's not what he did. God came to a guy named Abram and he said this in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, all the people groups of the earth will be blessed. So it looked like decay and death were going to win, but then God intervened. So in love, having nothing to do with prior good in Abram, God called him out and said, through you, I'm going to deliver a promise that the world we all want can be a world that comes about. That Abram would become a great nation, that through that nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is a a promise of a Savior who would come and a gospel that would go out to all the world. Some of us in the room are people that find ourselves unconvinced. We, we have doubts, questions. We read this and at times we believe it. At other times we struggle to believe it. On other times we think it's a pile of malarkey. One of the things I would say to those of us in the room like that is look around. 
Look around. There's evidence of Genesis 12 in the room today. We're an immensely diverse group of people. There are people here from all different kinds of backgrounds, ethnicities, educational experiences. And we together form evidence of the gospel at work among us. Isn't that tremendous? Friends, not every church is like that. In fact, most are merely a reflection of one tiny slice of life. And God's given us a real gift in that we're a weird bunch. And the weirder the better because it's an evidence of God's truth at work. Who knows how many families of the earth are represented in this one room? Now from this moment on, the the Bible's story is simply a fulfillment of what's told to us in Genesis 12. God created a new people group called the Jews. Their call was to live distinctly as God's people in order to evidence His work for the world. And from them would come Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament tell us the story of His fulfillment of these promises. Jesus came to bring redemption. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus saying, I want to re-enter into a love relationship with you. The rest of the Bible is merely a fulfillment of that work known as the church. And then the story ends with what we call restoration. There's creation in Genesis. There's restoration or recreation in Revelation. That is the story of the Bible. How'd I do? It's a little bit longer than three minutes. That's a preacher's three minutes. All right? Give me some grace. Now, my question for you is, did you hear all of that in Isaiah 49? Because it's all there. Now, I didn't the first time I read it either. But let's read it again and see if we can catch glimpses of these truths there. Verse 1, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. What's he saying? He's saying the message of love, the gospel, the truth, it's for the whole world. It's for everybody. It should go out to all the nations. Everyone ought to have a chance to hear the name of Jesus. To hear the facts of what he did. To have the opportunity to respond to the truth of the gospel. Next month in May, our church will send a group to Haiti in order to help do just that. To send the call out. Before I was born, the Lord called me. And from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. What's he saying? He's saying God's perfect plan to offer love and forgiveness and acceptance through the death and resurrection of Jesus was planned out before Jesus ever came. None of it. Not a moment of Jesus' life was by chance. Not a single ounce of a day was done without the knowledge and planning of God. That's incredible. 
I hope your God is that big. I hope you think of your days in that way. That there's nothing that happens that didn't first pass through the loving care and hands of God. Verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in His quiver. Again, some of us, I said this last week, some of us love poetic, prophetic passages. The rest of us say, just say what you mean. But here's what he's saying. Jesus, when he came, he spoke with power. People said to him, he doesn't talk like the rest of our teachers. There's life in what he says. There's power in it. It doesn't fall on deaf ears. It, it pierces our hearts. It's like a sword. Have you found that to be true of the Scriptures? That they can divide you and lay you out flat. But not in a malicious, cunning, divisive, harmful way. It's, it's more like the scalpels the scalpel of a surgeon who cuts in order to heal. That's what Jesus' words do. That's what Isaiah said he would do long before he came. There's power in the gospel, in Jesus' words, to change your life forever. So what we say in this room and, and what we speak to each other has tremendous power. Don't let it fall on deaf ears. Don't ignore it. Don't let your heart become hard in such a way that you hear the truth, but you don't hear it. Receive it and respond to it. Verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now here's where one of those places it's easy to see the, the original sense that Isaiah was speaking to and the fuller sense that he was pointing forward to. Here's what I mean. As a whole... The nation of Israel, the people of God, failed to receive God's love and live in light of His laws. On a whole, they simply didn't do it. They didn't deliver. They, like us, rebelled again and again and again and again. If you want to see the story of your own life, lived before you live it, read the Old Testament. It's it's a story of people hearing God, responding to God, being broken in repentance, and then slowly gravitating back to look like the people around them, turning away from God to the things of the world. God in His love coming again and saying, come back, here's the truth, repent. And some of the people doing that. And then the cycle repeating itself over and over and over again. God's glory was to be displayed in their holiness and they didn't do it. And so ultimately God was not surprised or frustrated by that. He simply sent one who would be the true and better Israel. One who would be the embodiment of everything they were supposed to be and do. His name, of course, was Jesus. Jesus is the only person who ever lived fully in light of the love of the Father every moment of every day. 
And that is what enabled him to live a life that was pleasing to God. So your obedience to God isn't somehow wrapped up in your own self-effort and performance. It's wrapped up in you remaining in the love of God. We don't obey God in spite of what he tells us to do or in order to earn something from him. It's the opposite. We obey him because of what he's given us and in light of his love. That's why Jesus was able to die in your place because he fulfilled all that the law required. Just as an aside here, you, you don't have to live at the whim of everybody else. What Jesus' death on the cross and his perfect obedience mean is that your life doesn't have to be wrapped up in the performance of seeking to please everybody else. Jesus already did it for you. And so he takes not just your sin, but in exchange for your sin, he gives you perfect righteousness before the Father. That means you're fully his. And you're freed from the terrible snare of living for people. Because you're freed by his perfect love to simply love them for free, not for what they give you in return. Some of you would experience joy different than you have ever known if you believed that, if you lived in light of that. Chapter 4, verse 4 But I said, I have labored in vain. This is Jesus talking. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hands, and my reward is with God. This is mind-blowing. It's incredible what's being said here. There's a scene many years later, some 700 years later, where Jesus is standing outside the city of Jerusalem. He's about to go in. He's about to go in riding on a donkey to the praise of people. And he knows in just a matter of hours after that, he's going to be arrested, falsely tried, falsely accused, and killed. Rejected, just as quick as he was received. And knowing all of that, he stands outside the city and does what? He weeps. He weeps as he looks out on the city knowing that the masses have already rejected him. Why did he do that? That was messy. Why did he do that? He did that because Isaiah wrote that he would do that. Is your view of Scripture that high? What happened in the life of Christ in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happened not merely because it happened. It happened because the Scriptures said it was going to happen. That's the sovereign God that we worship. That Isaiah says, Jesus is going to stand outside the city and weep over it because they've rejected Him. And then Jesus would do that because that's what Isaiah said would happen. It's incredible. 
Jesus was broken over the sins of the people who would reject him. And yet he knew that he would rise again. He knew that there would be a reward for him. That God the Father would give him all authority in heaven and on earth. That he would pronounce on him a name that's above every name. And that one day in the future, everyone will bow to him. It's amazing. Verse 5, Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to himself, to gather Israel to himself, I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. God has been my strength. He says, now it's talking about God the Father, Is it too small thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light for the Gentiles, and my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you hear it? He is breaking forth in such clarity all of history. If you're here today and you've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior and you're not ethnically Jewish, then you, my friend, are experiencing the fulfillment of this promise. Right inside of you, there is objective evidence of God at work. It's amazing. And as we look around the world and we read the news and we watch the news and we see the chaos happening in other parts of the world, we can trust and have confidence that God's word will go forth. That as the people of God are obedient to the commands of God, that all the peoples of the world will one day hear the gospel. That our Savior isn't an American Savior. That He's a Savior for the world. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, The Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, did that happen? Did they turn away? Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This one who will be praised by all, everyone, is the chosen instrument to bring God's love. So here, nestled in this text that seems so obscure and difficult and hard to understand is the whole story of the scriptures. It's the whole story of humanity. And if that's too big and fuzzy and out there for you, then simply look in your own heart. It's the story of your life. You have been looking for that love. You have been looking for a love that would accept you, love you, embrace you, forgive you. A love that would grant you mercy and grace that somewhere in your heart you know you don't deserve. A love that would give to you what everyone else has failed to give to you. That love is offered in Christ. Now maybe you're thinking, that's all fine and well, but that's just fancy preacher talk. You don't know how my life really is. I've prayed that prayer or gone to that church or read that Bible or whatever else. I hear you, but I don't really hear you. 
It hasn't worked. It hasn't played itself out that way. Do you ever feel that way inside? You're not the only one. Look at verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Do you feel forgotten? Do you feel like God has heard and seems to respond to everybody else but me? Do you feel like you've brought your requests to God and these are things that honor God and your heart's desire is to be pleasing to Him and He simply isn't following through? He's forgotten. It's falling on deaf ears. My prayers are only hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. Look at how my life has played out. This, this isn't the evidence of a good, loving God. Has the Lord seemingly forgotten you? Well, God uses a stark metaphor here to convince us of His love. And I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. The only reason I would use this illustration is if God does it. All offenses aside, here it is. Verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. What's he saying? He's saying, can can a mother, can a woman that's given birth to a child in her regular course of everyday life is to feed that child, not with formula, but with herself. Can she forget? Those of you in the room who have done that, can you forget? Well, on one measure, the the answer is clearly no. Why? Does she set a timer? No. Why? Why? Well, first of all, there's the what? There's the crying of the baby. That makes things pretty clear. But then she feels it. It hurts not to give. Have you ever thought of God like that? That there is within God a love for his children like a mother for the child? And that he actually doesn't need external promptings to be reminded to give you what you need? Isn't that cool? But that's the first half of the verse. Second half says what? Well, she might forget. She might actually forget, but if she does forget, I won't forget. That's kind of confusing. He says, she, th- this mom, this mom would never forget. But if she did, no, I love you even better than that. I love you even more, even grander. Every picture, every metaphor, every image we have of God ultimately falls short because he loves us perfectly. No mother ever perfectly loves her child. And so then he ramps it up even further. And here's where we'll end. Verse 16. See, see, 
I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. It wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for a master to have the name of a slave tattooed on his slave's hand. It was a public mark of ownership. It was a way of saying, you might get away, but you're not really getting away from me. You're mine. But it was unheard of for that to flow the other way. In other words, no master would get his slave's name engraved or tattooed on his hand. Why? It simply doesn't make sense. Ownership only goes one way. The greater doesn't ever take on the lesser. The strong eat the weak, right? If anything in life is known for sure, it's that. But, but notice that doesn't really get the image right. The word isn't tattooed. It's what? Engraved. Now, some of us are tattooed. Some of us have some tats. Right? None of you have an engraving. This word engraving means something pretty shocking. It means something more like chiseled or cut or hacked. See, I have chiseled, cut, hacked you in the palms of my hands. Friends, the very hand of God has you chiseled and hacked on it. You see, the very hands of God were stretched out, tied down, and nailed to a cross. Then that cross was hoisted in the air. And then Jesus pushed up on nail-hacked feet in order to gasp for breath and then collapsed again and did that again and again and again and again and again in order to communicate there is a love that is the love you've always wanted. And it's found not in you but outside of you and not by what you do but in spite of what you do. Jesus was engraved for you. Why? Because he loves you. Despite our open, willful, defiant, rebellious hearts, he loves us. Despite all the times his nail-engraved hands reached out to us and we rejected him, the offended one took on the offense in order that we could find true life in him. All that he asks in return is simply that he would be the recipient of our greatest love and affection. Is that too much to ask? 
It's simply asking for what He has given to us. A love this great, a God this holy, a salvation this secure naturally demands that we would give all of life back to Him. Not to earn that love, you never can, but simply out of an expression of the love that we've been loved with. If you've never received that love, you can today. You can by saying, God, I have tried to go my own way and it hasn't worked out. I've turned good things into ultimate things. I've made everything else an object of love but you. And now I want to receive Jesus' death on my behalf and pledge my life to you. It may be that you're hearing that for the first time today. Regardless of what's in your past, you can respond to that. It also may be that you've sat in this room hundreds, even thousands of times and heard these words many ways, but never really responded. You too can today. It's also possible you have responded and you're saved and yet you've left your first love. Not that you've lost your salvation, but you've been living for lesser loves again. Friends, that's simply what sin is. You can respond to today by returning to that love. So I'd ask you as you close to stand. Let's pray together. And how would you respond to this gospel call? This amazing story of love. I would like to pray over you and then ask today that we would leave quietly. Leave at your own pace. And in some way, would you respond by grabbing somebody next to you and praying together? Or by coming to someone here at the front or the staff or the other leaders and saying, I need to respond, giving us the blessing of praying over you. So I'd ask that some people would come here to the front. I'll give you a moment of silence and then pray for you. And then would you go as is appropriate?